BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Hey, want to know a secret? Yeah, I bet you do. We all do. But isn't that bizarre? I mean, what is it about secrets, knowing that someone else knows something that you don't know, that can just drive us batty? And also, holding on to a secret, well, it can just make you want to throw up or feel totally uncomfortable in your own skin. Now, did you know that there is a leading expert on the psychology of secrets? Well, he's Michael Slepian, and he's a professor of leadership and ethics at Columbia University. And hey, he just got tenure. So that means that his work has got to be good. And beyond his 50 empirical articles on secrecy, truth, and deception, he's also had his research covered by The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, the BBC, and NPR. So maybe we can't share each other's secrets, but at least we can learn more about the psychology behind them. Michael Slepian, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So secrets. You know, I have a secret that I'm holding on to, as I'm sure so many people that you've studied do. In fact, quite a few secrets. And I, you know, reading your book, it's amazing to me how much just thinking about the secret eats away at me. I mean, I literally feel in my stomach this, like, gnawing. <laughs> so... Let's dive right into the effect of holding secrets on our well-being. Like, why does it sometimes make us feel so bad physically? One of the most frustrating parts of having a secret is the moment you intend to keep a secret is the moment you have that secret well before you ever have the opportunity to hide it in conversation. And so the moment you decide to keep something a secret, your mind is going to turn to that thing time and time again, because what it means to have a secret is you want to be ready for any conversation out there in the world related to your secret. But that increased sensitivity to anything related to your secret will mean that you think about it even when you're alone in a room. Um, and this turns out to be one of the main problems. We often, our minds are sort of attracted to our secrets for this reason. And because we are choosing to be alone with most of those secrets, we often don't develop healthy ways of thinking about them. So we're kind of stuck thinking about this thing 
in an unhelpful way on our own. So I want to talk a little bit about the difference between intention and action. I mean, there are things that we do that, you know, we don't want people to know about, but it doesn't become the kind of like intent to hold this secret. We kind of just let it go. We figure we got away with it. It's not going to, no one's going to find out. So it's no big deal. But then, as you mentioned, that there's this like intention component. So like, what's the difference between intention and action? And how does that relate to its effects on our well-being? What we used to think about secrecy, the sort of old idea and the very intuitive idea is the action is the problem. Sort of hiding a secret in conversation feels awkward or stressful. And that over time acts as a cumulative stressor, um, which can wear away at our health and maybe our relationships as well. And it turns out that that is not exactly right. Where that idea comes from is a few experiments where people sort of create the concealment situation in the laboratory. And the problem with those studies, it turns out, is they don't really look like what secrecy looks like in the real world. And there's plenty of secrets that are we could say, easy to keep in the sense that they're not difficult to maintain in a conversation. You know, even if someone asks you a question directly related to the secret, which really rarely happens, but even in that sort of worst case scenario, you don't reveal it. And and it's not so difficult because you're mostly prepared for these moments. And then much more frequently, something about the conversation makes you think about the secret and you hold back. And that also isn't typically very hard. And so the average secret is not difficult to hide in conversation, but the average secret is difficult to live with on your own. And when you choose to be alone with something, that's when the problems can begin. And so just the mere intention of hiding a secret whenever necessary can set up all these stressful processes, even when you don't even have to hide the secret at all. And I feel like some secrets kind of wax and wane. Like there are times where, you know, you know, I have a I have a secret. I go and talk to, you know, uh, my therapist or my best friend or whatever. I, I I divulge the secret. I feel better. You know, they reassure me that, like, you know, that if there's a dilemma of whether or not I should reveal this secret to someone who might be affected of it, and like, you know, no, you shouldn't, or you know, whatever. And then, but then, like, and then you feel better for a while. And then something like, oh, I don't know, reading your book <laughs> triggers like the the resurgence of anxiety about keeping this secret. So like, why is it that we can't just hold on to like once we've just decided it's not a threat? Why does it continue to like pop back up at inopportune moments? Yeah. So first of all, my apologies. Um, you're right that the sort of burden of a secret sort of waxes and wanes and it sort of comes and goes. And sometimes it's really relevant to what's going on and sometimes less so. And, you know, there's kind of good news there, which is if it's difficult today, it might not be difficult next week. But when it becomes difficult, again, for me, it's a signal that there's some work to do. Um, if a secret's sort of gnawing at you and bothering you, to me, it suggests there's something unresolved. And that's often what happens with most secrets. You know, when when there's something bothering us and when there's something we're struggling with, we talk about it with other people because other people are so useful to help us figure things out. Um, you know, this is how we go through life. We get help from the people around us. And by not doing that, then we're sort of setting ourselves up to potentially feel ashamed or isolated or inauthentic for having a secret. And that's when the secret can weigh us down. You also mentioned that there is a relationship between certain personality traits and the way in which we keep secrets or how much they affect us. So tell us a little bit about that relationship. 
So there's a few different ways of thinking about this question. Um, and so we'll start with something that feels very intuitive and obvious. Um, extroverted people keep fewer secrets. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, it's still very interesting that people who really enjoy social interactions, you know, so much of our life isn't revealing secrets. And just because someone's really social doesn't mean they would spill their secrets more, uh, but they do. Um, but what's interesting is extroverted people, while they keep fewer secrets, they also get more involved in the kinds of situations that people keep secret. <laughs> right. Um, and then conscientiousness, sort of diligence and carefulness is related to getting less involved in the kinds of situations people keep secret, but keeping more of them secret. And so this is sort of where the complications are. You know, you there's certain behaviors that are very common when it comes to secrets, you know, whether it's cheating or um, infidelity or having done something wrong. And to understand the effects of having those as secrets, we want to understand the unique part about the secrecy, sort of irrespective of what the secret is about. And so in my studies, we have this list of common secrets that people keep. 38 categories turns out to really well cover what people commonly keep secret. And in my studies, we essentially recognize people have multiple secrets. Um, not all of those secrets will hurt you. And so the question is, which? And when we look at this sort of broad set of secrets, we can start asking, irrespective of what the secrets are about, why do our secrets so often hurt us? Yeah. So let's talk about that. Is there a, a sort of set of features of a secret that is more likely to hurt us than one that is more benign, like a malignant versus can't, you know, benign tumor? Yes. And there turns out to be three such features. And so the way we've found that is we've looked at all these common secrets people keep, this list of 38 categories of secrets. We know it really covers what people keep secret very well because the average person at any given time has 13 secrets from that list of 38. Um, when we ask people open-ended, what's a secret you're keeping? 92% of the time it fits one of these items from the list. And so the list just captures all the things you think it would capture, things about relationships and sex and um, family and, you know, deception and ambition. Um, they're not all negative, um, but most of them are. And in order to understand the features that are related to what makes secrets harmful, what we need to understand is essentially how do secrets differ from each other or, or what ways, in what ways are those categories of secrets similar to or different from each other? And it turns out we can describe the sort of space of secrecy with three dimensions. By which I mean, um, the first one is the biggest one. How morally wrong do you think this behavior is? And the more morally wrong you think your secret is, the more ashamed you feel of it. The next one is essentially how much the secret involves other people. And the less the secret involves other people, the less it involves your relationships with other people, the more personal it feels and the more isolating it feels to keep. Hmm. And the third one is whether the secret is related to your goals and aspirations, which often revolves around work, but not always. And so the less your secret involves some clear goal or aspiration, the less insight you feel you have into the secret. Um, these are sort of secrets that are more emotional in tone. We often feel like we don't understand them well. And so the bad news is that a secret can hurt you in these three different ways. But the good news is it's very, very rare that it hurts you in all three of the ways, meaning it's very, it's the normal course of events. I think we see 95% of the time in our data, one of those three harms I mentioned does not apply to your situation. 
And what you want to do is recognize that because that sort of helps you find your path forward, um, understanding the way in which your secret is not hurting you. Yeah, I mean, I the one the one kind of secret that comes to mind, which I want to say unequivocally, I am not holding, um, is like data fraud, which would be both involving other people, as you know, affecting your career and morally wrong. Um, do you ever come up with? you know, or, or come into situations, you know, like as someone who's done brain imaging, I've found myself in the unfortunate position to, you know, see someone's brain scan and and there be a clear finding and then having to grapple with whether or not you tell that person. When it comes to these kinds of secrets, do you ever, does somebody ever reveal something to you that then you feel morally responsible to tell someone else about, whether it's an authority or, I don't know, another person? One time ever, um, this has happened to me in in a way that felt very dramatic. Um, in the book, I talk about this uh, project that I was more of a helping hand in. Um, other folks, talented folks were in charge of this uh, project, and it was called The Secret Telephone. And what happened is essentially it's this art project that sort of appears in in different parks around New York City, and it's this telephone, this like old-fashioned looking telephone, and it says secret telephone, you know, um, get something off your chest. And if you happen to stumble across this phone, you can pick it up. You can listen in the receiver to other secrets people have previously shared and you can leave your own secret. And the first day we launched this, someone admitted to something, let's say violent, um, really well captures what, what was said. And we just were like, Whoa, um, what do we do with this? We brought it to the police and they were like, yeah, that's, we can't do anything with this. But that wow. was the one time only that I ever encountered that. And it was like, it, it, we were just like, what do we do here? How do we handle this? Um, so we, we tried to do the right thing. Um, but yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we tend to think of secrets as being kind of maybe distinctly human, uh, it's hard to imagine other animals keep secrets, although I can imagine that, you know, Franz de Waal will probably disagree <laughs> with like other non-human primates. And we could talk about that. Uh, but also, you know, there there is a time when children begin to be deceptive. And it's a to me, uh, you know, it's very clear when that moment happens. And like, they kind of like, look at you, like they're testing out this new, new thing of lying. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like what we know about in terms of the the cognitive requirements, whether it's like specific to our species or during our developmental trajectory, that allow us to keep secrets first off, and then secondly, that then allow those secrets to make us feel bad. I mean, there are times like I remember when my my daughter first deceived me, I got the impression that it did not make her feel bad <laughs> at all. She didn't, you know, but as 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 my, you know, my son's gotten older, I feel like it, the secrets do seem to weigh on him in a way they didn't when he was younger. Yeah. So in their earliest of years, so the first thing to in order to be able to keep a secret competently you need to have an understanding that there's something in your head that is not necessarily in the other person's head unless you share it with them. And kids develop this understanding of what other minds are sort of aware of gradually. Um, you know, by ages four and five, it starts developing and it starts getting sharper with with later years. 
And so in their earliest years, kids will try to keep a secret by simply denying something. Um, it's not very artful. Uh, so for example, um, a parent told me a story about uh, a child who denied eating cookies, but had cookie crumbs over his lips. And, and you know, another one um, told me a story of her daughter, her three-year-old daughter, who denied, you know, getting into her mother's makeup, but with lipstick smeared all over her face. And so, you know, they're just starting to understand that maybe there's a way that they can conceal this thing from their parents if their parents don't yet know about it. And as they get older, they start getting a better sense of how what's a essentially a believable story to tell to, to make that happen. And so, you know, by age six, for example, then they start having a much better sense of what is a more believable story to tell um, in order to keep a secret. For example, saying um, uh, the cat broke the vase rather than a ghost. And so as they're getting older, they're having a sharper sense for this idea that if they were the only witness to something, other people don't know about it. And you can keep it that way if you sort of carefully say the right thing. It doesn't seem like kids feel bad about these sort of secrets because I think they mostly involve what we would consider pretty minor indiscretions in, in the grand scheme of things. Kids can only get into so much trouble but as they get into their teenage years, their secrets certainly have a much, um, they certainly can get, get into more trouble and they can be dealing with more complex struggles, you know, struggles of shame and, and maybe struggling with school or, or struggling with, you know, friends or, or, what is, or whatever. And essentially, as soon as children will hold something back because they're worried about the social disapproval that could come from admitting something, as soon as they let you know, fear for how other people will respond eclipse their ability to place trust in others. That's when secrecy is clearly related to lower well-being. Hmm. You know, there's one thing that you pointed out in your in your discussion of sort of the kind of cognitive development required to keep secrets that that really I had never thought about, which is the fact that in order to kind of understand the complexity or how to keep a good secret, children have to be better aware of how their memories work or like that, you know, that they have to, you know, there's this like, so, so tell us a little bit about sort of like how kids early on remember their past experiences and then what is the leap that needs to be made in order to then, you know, effectively keep a secret. Yeah. One of the most fascinating things I uncovered when writing the chapter on secret keeping and kids was this idea that children are not initially paying attention to their inner world. Essentially, um, you know, a good example of this is uh, a study asked, I want to say five-year-olds, to think about a toothbrush. And, you know, most people in the world put their toothbrush in a, in a very special, you know, in a certain place. Um, you know, think for a moment about where that place might be. Um, and of course, everyone puts their toothbrush in the bathroom. And, you know, after a few moments, the, the researcher asked the child, what were you just thinking about? And most kids were like, nothing. And it's, they certainly were thinking about the bathroom before, but they just weren't, their just mind moved on and they weren't reflecting on their own mental processes. You know, and what's essential in order to keep a secret, you need to be aware of your own mental contents and, and what's in there. And as you get a better understanding that, you know, you have these memories that are from your past, 
other people won't be aware of those memories if they weren't there at the same time. And that's when we get the, you know, that's when we have the ingredients to keep a secret. Yeah. And then, of course, you you also talk about how during the pandemic for the for the teenage kids that were teenagers at the beginning of the pandemic during the lockdown, that this actually had a, a pretty significant effect. I mean, we know their mental health was affected. Can you tell us what the relationship is between sort of secret holding and this isolation that that a lot of a lot of teenagers found themselves in? Yeah, it's it's so easy to find the worst way of thinking about something when you're alone with it. You know, we don't have other people to sort of reality check how we're, how we're thinking about it. And also when people, you know, especially children, you know, their struggles are so common. Teenagers are all struggling with the same identity concerns and, you know, f- trying to develop friendships and and sort of trying to move into the next stage of life, which is of course so difficult. And those struggles are universal. And, and once we understand that, it makes it it makes them so much easier to grapple with. Um, and that's before we get useful advice and guidance and, and all that from other people. Just understanding that what we're experiencing, we're not alone. You know, as isolating as it can feel to have a secret, we're not alone at all on the secrets we keep and, and how they make us feel. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. And that brings me to, at least in my upbringing, the uh, uh, biggest common way in which people... uh, (laughs) divulge their secrets, which was in the confessional. <laughs> like in some ways, like after reading your book, I'm like wondering whether the Catholic Church had had a, you know, their finger on the pulse here. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the role of confessions and like whether there is a kind of modern confessional today that that maybe doesn't have, you know, some of the same other requirements as say, like a particular religious experience. Yeah. So the idea of confession in the religious sense, I find fascinating um, as someone who's never had that specific experience myself. Um, I would love to somehow one day get closer to it and, and study it in some way. What, you know, that sense of confession actually is what I would call confiding. Um, so when I use the word confession, I use it to mean you are revealing your secret to the person you're keeping it from. And then I say confiding is revealing a secret to a third party. And so confession, revealing a secret to the person you're keeping it from, sometimes that's the right thing to do. 
sometimes it can make things a whole lot worse. Um, and so it's really risky. You know, I think the sort of classic example here is if you've cheated on your partner, even if it was, let's say it was a one-time thing, let's say it was a long time ago, you know, should you tell them? And it's a really complicated question and a lot goes into how to navigate that question. One really useful thing to do when you're trying to decide whether or not to confess a secret to someone that you're keeping it from is hold off on making that decision and talk about the secret with a third party. Because by talking about a secret with a third party, you avoid all of the risks of confession. Um, you know, you're specifically choosing someone who's not going to reveal the secret back to the person you're keeping it from. And so you can get their emotional support and advice and guidance and, you know, validation and just a conversation can just make it so much easier just to, to talk about this thing with other people without the risks that could come from revealing the secret to the person you're keeping it from. And so really confiding, if you choose the right person, it's a really, really good bet. Uh, and it turns out that most experiences of confiding people are say are really helpful. People say even a really lukewarm response, even a sort of only mildly helpful response makes them feel really good. It makes them feel a lot better. We don't need a lot and other people have a lot to give. So I wanted to ask a little bit, like a follow-up of the kind of, you know, maybe why secrets that make us anxious or, you know, have these feelings might persist and, you know, we're, maybe speculate a little bit about evolutionary reasons. But when I think about like, okay, in this case, let's use the term confiding to a priest, say, about all your moral transgressions. I mean, I certainly remember when I was a kid and um, or a teenager and I, you know, we went to confession every Sunday um, and it just felt like, OK, I unburdened myself of all the bad things I did this week. And so I'm, I feel great starting with a fresh slate and like, boy, that was easy. So next time I put into a, you know, maybe this is just the teenage brain minus a prefrontal cortex, but it made it feel as if it was like, okay, for me to do these moral transgressions, because I could just go back into that little room, tell someone I can't see about it, you know, say a couple of Hail Marys and put it behind me. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating <laughs> idea that that someone should study because I think that makes a lot of sense this idea that it could potentially license you to you know commit those misdeeds again um I don't know of any research that shows that in the space of secrecy we could totally predict that from other things there yeah I mean, you know, maybe that just speaks speaks more to my um, moral turpitude uh, rather than anything else. But, but I wonder if you thought about like sort of, you know, what is there? Do you see a kind of advantage to the pain that secret keeping makes us feel uh, that that might lead to or might explain sort of why it persists and why it seems to be so common? I think certainly, you know, when we feel guilty about a secret when we feel like we've done something wrong, I think that's usually a useful feeling. Um, it can be frustrating when you can't undo it, um, when you can't change this past mistake, but that's when you're focusing on the past. And when you're focusing on the past, you're not gonna get very far in terms of improved coping. But when we think about how bad we feel about this mistake we've made in the past, but think about, that from the lens of the present and the future and how you don't have to make that mistake again. You can learn from your lessons or sort of make up for bad behavior. When we think about sort of the lessons we can draw and what we can do differently, then we're in a good place. And so I do think there's a place for feeling bad in the right way to motivate us to do differently next time, to do better. 
So let's talk a little bit about the coping strategies that you lay out in the book. And, and I wonder if I could like also just kind of preface this next bit of the conversation with saying that like, you know, I think sometimes we talk ourselves into the fact that the bad behavior was necessary in order to gain us a particular insight. So we kind of like say, well, you know, you know, if I did X, that, you know, indicates that there's a problem and now I'm going to fix the problem. So, you know, it's I'm better off having done the, the bad deed rather than, I don't know, like, so yeah, so with that in mind, tell us about the coping strategies. And is that kind of the sort of dark side of it? No, I think you're right that, you know, part of life is making mistakes and, and learning from them. And someone who never made the mistakes that we all make, you know, maybe they're they're missing something, those learning experiences that we grow from and sort of decide we'll do better from and, and sort of improve ourselves from. And so the, the three coping strategies that I cover in the book align with those three dimensions of secrets we were talking about. And the first one is the one I was just mentioning, this idea that even when our past behavior, we consider it to be morally wrong, that doesn't mean you have to feel ashamed um, today and for forever. Instead, you can think about it as a learning lesson, you know, as a lesson to learn from, as a, as a point to do better from. You know, we can recognize that our past mistakes can really feel uncomfortable today because we feel like we've improved as a person. And so inst instead of feeling really bad about yourself from about what you did in the past, you could say, okay, like, I'm not going to do that again. I've, I've learned from that lesson. And so your past mistakes don't have to reflect on who you are today. They can be this thing that you use as a jumping point to, to doing better. And so even when you feel like you've done something morally wrong, it's not you're not doomed. You can you can sort of use this in this way if you sort of orient your mind toward the future and away from the past. And so that's that first dimension, um, the morality of the secret and, and feeling that what you've done is wrong. The second dimension, you know, often our secrets might involve another person, and we might forget that that's a huge resource. You know, maybe you can talk to that person about the secret, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, you know, I've learned from my own life that even when secrets come out, we still aren't really good about talking about them. And so recognizing the people around you that can help you certainly will make a big difference. And, you know, maybe you're keeping a secret to protect another person. And that also can really help in this domain, recognizing, okay, this is not easy, but I'm doing this for the right reasons. I'm protecting this other person. I'm protecting their feelings or I'm protecting their relationship or, you know, your relationship with them. And so, you know, one is thinking about how your past mistakes don't reflect on who you are today and sort of using your misdeeds of the past to sort of orient yourself to what you want to do differently in the future. The other is thinking about the way in which the secret might be helping other people around you. And then the third one is thinking about your reasons. And this gets back to the sort of secrets that involve our goals and aspirations. And so even if a secret feels really emotionally laden, you can think, well, you know, I have my reasons for keeping it. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily lighten the load entirely, but it helps. Yeah. And, I, you know, I wanted to talk to you about like sort of how this issue, of, uh, that first dimension of the, the moral question maps on to sort of like Kohlberg's stages of moral development, where, you know, initially, like, let's take sexual infidelity as an example. You know, 
it it can seem like, well, the right thing to do is to, like, let's say you know that someone else has been unfaithful to their partner. Like, the right thing to do is to, like, tell the partner because that's sort of, like, morally black and white and they have a right to know. But if you think a little bit more carefully about that, in some ways, it's not going to benefit the partner who, you know, potentially could be dealing with a lot of hurt if they find out. And so maybe then the moral thing to do is to not reveal. And then, like, there's all these layers that can that you can pop on to it. And you even describe how, like, in some cultures, sexual infidelity is not considered necessarily a really big deal. So, you you know, you show these numbers of, like, well, maybe some some 83 percent of people in the U.S. might say, yes, it's you know morally wrong. But if you... Eh, <laughs> And this is from your book. I'm not just being stereotypical. You know, talk to the French or the Spanish, like that number is a lot lower. So, yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of like moral development, these stages and how that maps onto the the decisions we make around our secrets. Yeah. So especially with the sexual infidelity example, it's just, it's such an evocative example because you can so easily talk yourself into either answer as being the right one. And so in thinking through that conundrum, which is unfortunately a common one, it, you know, I think the first question is, well, why am I keeping this a secret? You know, and maybe it's what we were just talking about. It's because you're trying to protect this other person. Um, But of course, you're also trying to protect yourself too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if the reason that you decide, okay, maybe I should reveal this secret, you know, one thing you could say is it's the morally right thing to do. Another reason you might want to reveal the secret is you just are tired of being alone with it. You're just tired of having to live with the guilt of keeping this huge thing from your partner. And so if that's the reason you want to do this to relieve your own guilt, that's, I think, the moment to pause and think about, okay, revealing this secret can make you feel a whole lot better, but what effect is it going to have on the other person? And so I think, you know, I think these things certainly matter in degree. I think everyone would agree that serial cheating is is morally wrong and probably not the kind of thing that is okay to keep secret. A one-time indiscretion, I think most people would agree that's less morally wrong than sort of a repeat offender. And especially when we're talking about a one-time indiscretion, you know, you could think maybe you're better off not revealing this to this to your person if this is never going to happen again. And so the final wrinkle in, in this really complicated conundrum is trying to understand what your partner would want in the matter. Because some people, even if it would hurt them and even if it would damage the relationship, maybe irreparably, there are people out there who say, this is something I would want my partner to tell me. And there are other people who out there who in the realm of, you know, this is a one-time thing, a total, you know, lapse of judgment, indiscretion will never happen again. There are other people who say, I wouldn't want to know about this. I ask people to respond to this very question. Imagine your partner cheated on you. This has happened one time. It's never going to happen again. It was this total lapse of judgment. Would you want to know? And um, 77% of people said yes. I thought that number was going to be lower. Mm. But either way, it goes to show some people would want to know and, and some people wouldn't want to know. And, and that's that's what's really hard to figure out on your own. And that's why you might want to talk to other people to get a sense of it. But yeah, it becomes so complicated so quickly. And what's the more moral um, decision in 
this morally complicated scenario. You know, and maybe a portion of those 77 are, are wrong, that actually they would be worse off if they didn't know, and they're just not. Yeah, a lot of people have that intuition, and, and me too. It's like, should I run this study again? And just after people say yes, I should be like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or or play it so that, you know, like ask a follow-up question about, should your friend know? Like, you know, like put it on to somebody else as opposed to if it's not you, but like, you know, if your friend was being, you know, cheated on, like, should they know? Anyway, but I want to let our listeners know that um, Michael's book, The Secret Life of Secrets, How Our Inner Worlds Shape Well-Being, Relationships, and Who We Are is available at booksellers everywhere. We didn't get so much into the who we are part explicitly. Um, we're running a little bit short on time. But I, you know, I wonder if you could just tell us, I have, I have sort of two more questions. I, I, there's one more that I want to end on. So tell us a little bit about sort of what we can learn from how we hold secrets um, about sort of our sense of self. You know, it's weird. There is part of what we might be trying to achieve with secrecy is this idea of sort of compartmentalizing and, and presenting a particular self to other people. But and that's when I think it's useful to recognize that we all have similar secrets um, and we're not alone in the secrets we keep. And the, the number one way of connecting with other people is revealing information about yourself. You know, disclosure and relationship strength go hand in hand. You know, besides physical touch and, and sharing experience with each other, communicating with each other is the primary way we connect with each other. And so choosing to hold back is is holding back from the the major way that we connect with others and and learn about others. And and when people reveal to us, we learn about them. And you know, when we reveal to them, they learn about us. But perhaps most importantly, to your question, when we reveal ourselves to other people, we learn about ourselves because we see how people react, you know, to what we're telling them. You know, a lot of self-discovery comes from learning how other people respond to us. Yeah, we are not selves in a vacuum. You know, we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so when we sort of hold back certain things from other people, we're, we're really missing out on this opportunity to learn about ourselves and, and learn how to move forward if it's something we're struggling with. All right. So my final question is, can people tell? <laughs> Do they know when you're holding a secret? Like, how good are we? Is, that, is this something that like some people are really good at, you know, telling whether someone has a secret? Or are some people really bad at hiding the fact that they have a secret and like what is the, is there a body language are there like what are the tells um and and how often do people know right so so the answer to this question can people tell the answer is yes and no um so let's start with the no first um people can have a sense of how you're feeling and if you've had a bad day and you know maybe if there's something you're not saying but they can't literally read your mind and that's useful. You can have a thought and not share it, and people would never know that you had the thought. When we look at studies of lie detection, which importantly, it's important to keep in mind that lying is just one way to keep a secret. There are plenty of ways to keep a secret that don't involve lying. But when we look at studies of lying detection between strangers, people can't do it. Um, and so if you've heard like eye contact and looking to the right and you know, even saying like, um, uh, None of those things are valid cues to deception in a broad manner where you could just look at anyone on the street and, and know with certainty whether they're lying or not. And so when it comes to strangers, the answer is you can't. Um, you can't tell. Um, some people are better at sort of being perceptive to, to subtleties of nonverbal behavior, but it's still not enough to get around this idea of people can't read your thoughts. Um, 
But think about your partner, you know, someone who's known you for years, they have a good sense of when something's bothering you, or they have a good sense of, you know, when there's something on your mind that you're not mentioning. Um, there's a story that I share in the book of, it's a dramatic example, but it's, you know, a story of someone who's cheating on their partner and, you know, the way that they're handling this, you know, they're not lying so much as they're just totally shutting themselves off from their partner. And and this person thought that their partner had some kind of like medical change in personality. They thought, you know, something really strange has happened to this person. It turns out that when you, if to keep a secret, you just totally shut yourself off from the other person, they're going to notice something is up. And so no matter what, you know, with a romantic relationship, with a friendship, with a family relationship, even if you're keeping a secret, you definitely want to stay open with your thoughts and feelings more generally. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to notice something is up for sure. Lots to think about. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I think as we go into the holiday season, maybe this is the time to unburden ourselves of some of the secrets that are eating away at us. <laughs> Learn more about ourselves and um, come out into the new year feeling better about everything. So, Michael Slepian, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.